Welcome everyone to episode four of the Sport Science Collective podcast, where we are going to be chatting today specifically about hamstring uh, rehabilitation, strength and conditioning and training. But before we jump into that, as usual, we're going to jump around uh, the screen and have a, have a chat to all of our co-hosts. So I'm joined here by Jared Bailey, Ryan Letter, and Sandin Interisi. Baz, what's happening, mate? What'd you get up to last weekend? Uh, it's been good. The move down to St. Leonard's has been nice. The coastal life, I think, suits me. Although I probably haven't really left the house, to be fair. Just work from home and stare out into the backyard. Um, so it's been good. Um, yeah, nothing really striking to report for me. A got a, bit, uh, got a yourself a surfboard? Uh, no surf in St. Leonard's. So. <laughs> that, that might be good for the, for the kooks. Might get a fishing rod instead. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. That's a sport, right? Yeah. Head out there. Yeah. Be a wharfie. Yeah. I like it. Let's, what are you up to, mate? Oh, pretty busy week. I've been stuck at uni all week doing track exams. So that's been fun. Um, yeah. No passing? Sport. Yeah. Sorry, what was that, Sando? You're passing those track exams? Or? I'm not, I'm taking them. I'm not doing them. <laughs> what are you assessing? Uh, we're looking at some uh, physiology uh, lab-based skills at the moment. Oh, yeah, they're rough, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty rough. Yeah, so good luck. I did that all last week. Um, got, a, got a round of uh, X-Golf in on Saturday night a couple weeks ago. Um, so I put up a little saw the, the following day, saw around the ribs um, from all the, the big drives that I was trying to do. Yeah, um, smack them. Is the keyword trying there, Let's see. How'd you go? Yeah, the keyword was trying. Um, I hit one over 300, but I think that might have been a, a fault in their system because I couldn't do it again. And I think I got 250 was the best after that. Right. Now, I was um, there at the same time. How would you rate my performance at, on that evening? Oh, well, you, you look like you're going to smack it. And then it travelled about 40 metres, I reckon. Fair to say, I wasn't striking him very well at eight o'clock on Saturday night. <laughs> you have selected power drive. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of crossover from cricket to golf for you, Ailes. No, there wasn't. Not a, no, there wasn't. Not, not, not of that not. particular session. No. Uh, Sandon, how are you going, mate? You kicked in the last couple of weeks the game winner and the game opener. Did you, did you score a midway goal this, this week? Oh, not not quite. I was uh, more in the midfield over the weekend, but we got a win, so we're undefeated still, which is great. Up the fog. Um, but you can see had a bit of a change of scenery. I've been kicked out of the other room and I'll keep quiet. So um, the change in the background there. But um, looking forward to today's chat after footy on the weekend. I feel like I might have twins the old hammy, so good to get a bit of advice around that. Well, me too, mate. I just ran the... Great Ocean Road Half Marathon yesterday, and I am all sorts of sore and I'm questioning my preparation and the, the decision to stop strength and conditioning, which is a wonderful segue into our special guest that is joining us today, which is Brock Freeman, who I'll let Brock introduce himself, but briefly, he is um, working at Federation University and investigating um, the role of of the hamstring and how, how we can best train that to improve performance and reduce 
injury. Brock, do you want to give us a brief rundown of who you are and what you are doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm a PhD student at Fed Uni. So uh, under probably pretty well-known Warren Young and Scott Telfy there. Um, and my PhD is kind of more specifically the role of sprint training um, in hamstring injury prevention. So on top of that, I do a bit of work at Maribyrnong Sports Academy, um, which kind of supplements it nicely. Yeah. Great. Um, now you're, you're the injury expert at the moment because you've just come back from your own injury. How are you dealing with that, mate? Yeah, I uh, wouldn't recommend breaking your neck. Um, <laughs> it's not a heap of fun. But at the same time, uh, I would say I'm doing pretty well. It's pretty good to give you some perspective, especially when things could have been a fair bit worse. Yeah. Are you coming across to running and cycling now, mate, giving up team sports? Um, yeah, I'd say it's probably on the cards. It's a hard sell to, maybe not to me, but the other people in my life weren't super keen on me going back to contact sports yeah 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 i appreciate that hey let's jump into this episode which we're going to look at in some level of detail the role of the hamstrings and and i guess the term bulletproofing the hamstring is something that is that has grown in popularity in the last decade particularly the last five years um, and in large part coincides with the development of a piece of technology called the Nord board. Um, Brock, let's start right at the top. Why has there been this resurgence of, of um, research or this uh, development of research into the hamstrings? What, what, what are the hamstrings and what do they do? Yeah, so... I guess, well, the resurgence is probably as a result of the fact that they're the most common non-contact injury in a lot of field sports. So if you think about like AFL, soccer, rugby, and particularly like those positions where you have to do quite a lot of running, um, that's probably fuels that resurgence. But the hamstrings, they're the muscles at the back of your leg. So they kind of, I guess, you have one that attaches to the outside, then two, I guess, that attach to the inside. Um, and what they do, well, they basically help you move your lower leg. So they work with hip extension and also knee flexion. And then I guess, as we'll probably get to a bit later, eccentrically, they kind of control that knee extension and hip flexion at the same time. Now, Brock, when I do lots of running and lots of sprinting, and especially when I'm in the sprinting motion, I'm not thinking about my hamstrings. As in when, I, when I'm sprinting really fast, I'm not thinking hamstrings move, hamstrings move. So what role do they play and, and why are they so important when we're thinking about what the hamstrings role is in sprinting or high-speed running? So I guess they have two kind of roles. So if you think about when you're running, like you have your stance phase where you have your foot on the ground and then you have that swing phase where your foot's in the air. During that stance phase, they're kind of working, I guess, concentrically to help push you forward. So I think there's fair bit of research to say that um, I guess they're pretty important for horizontal force production off the ground, but maybe more importantly in that swing phase is particularly towards the end of it, where you think about as you bring your knee through your, your ankle or your lower leg is moving forward. Your hamstrings actually have to work pretty hard, like maximally to, to slow that lower leg down so that you can then hit the ground again and push off. And so is it that, that particular maximal effort there, where we need to be our strongest. Is that sort of what we're, we're talking about when we're talking about bullet, bulletproofing the hamstrings? 
look, I'd say the evidence probably points to that that real end late swing phase, but I, yeah, I've seen a few reviews, but I don't think anyone's really nailed it down to be that exact point. There's yeah. certainly an argument for the stance phase as well, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really depends who you talk to, but in general, like they happen one after the other. So yeah. if you're working on them, you're probably best to work on both. That's for sure. Especially given what you said in its, its role in horizontal force production, which is kind of critical to us propelling forward. Yeah, especially uh, even if you're not running fast, even if you're just your uh, everyday marathon runner and you want to get over the hills. Mm-hmm. There you go, warning. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Should listen to that advice. Should listen. Yeah. Um, uh, Brock, in terms of uh, coaches, so let's say not strength conditioning or sports scientists, do you know much about their perception around hamstring training? I know dealing with a lot of footballers, our coaches consider that to be the most important thing that we train in terms of strength and conditioning. But do you have you seen uh, many perceptions of coaches in terms of the importance of hamstring training um well not a lot really i guess i suppose a part of my phd we, we surveyed some of the afl high performance managers but um i guess their perceptions will be different to like the actual team sport coach um and i yeah i don't know that they like maybe at an elite level or the, the higher levels of community sport um the perceptions are probably quite a bit different to if you go out into the bush or to like your local rural town that doesn't have access to the to strength and conditioning coaches and probably this evidence with your research as well what what did you find with these uh sort of elite snc guys in terms of their importance of um hamstring training um that they so i guess we gave them quite a few few questions but the key takeaways were that they were pretty much employing everything from eccentric strengthening, isometric strengthening, their, their load monitoring. So they're tracking it with uh, like tracking GPS numbers, tracking session RPE. Um, they're also like, they're using screening on the Nord board or um, some clubs were using like the force frame as well. So like to say they don't care about it would be wrong because they're throwing pretty much everything at it. But maybe some of the other interesting stuff that came out of that was that when we look at like our load monitoring and particularly our high speed running, we kind of ask them like, what do you use for high speed running and what do you use for sprinting? Because commonly when you use GPS, like you have those two different thresholds or some people will have three or maybe four different kind of velocity bands. And there's a bit of variability between like club to club. So, I mean, we only had nine of the 18 respond, which I was probably a bit surprised we had that many, to be honest, because I like, I guess AFL clubs are probably pretty notorious, but keeping things in-house but yeah the variability between like the nine clubs as to what one would call um high speed running and one would call sprinting and how they would get to that figure was yeah completely different so it makes you think how can you you generalize load monitoring research i guess yeah that sounds super specific to the individual too you know like someone's someone's sprint or max effort you know is going to be a faster than somebody else's i wonder if there's any sort of is there any talk about it being relative to the individual i think the two studies that spring to mind use like an arbitrary cutoff of 24k an hour so it's probably something that there's room to pursue um and i think the other thing maybe that is interesting there is like when we say we're doing load monitoring i don't know that we're doing load monitoring for hamstring specifically i think it's more of like a general training load overtraining yeah 
Yeah, because if you think about like if you're monitoring, say, training load from this perspective that high speed running is like high metabolic demand, I might have high metabolic demands if I run at like 15Ks an hour, whereas I could probably sprint closer to double that. So the demands at the hamstring probably aren't quite there at maybe 50% of max speed. Yeah. And the flows into my question around the circumstances for hamstring injuries and from the research and from your experience, what would be the most common circumstances people sustain these injuries? Yeah, so the most common would be sprinting. Um, and then there's probably quite a few perturbations that flow into that. But I think Carl Askling might have an article that suggests it's maybe like 70% of all injuries happen in that that sprinting type motion. And then they normally happen in the biceps femoris. So that's that lateral hamstring. Um, but in terms of sprinting, like it can be acceleration, it can be running at maximum speed, it can be in like say an AFL setting, sprinting and picking up the ball. So, or the other one might be like having to evade an opponent or kind of being off balance. So the one that would spring to mind for that would be the Adam Trelaw incident. So he, I'm sure probably people are kind of familiar with that. It was all over the news, but did both hamstrings try to evade someone? And if you slow it down, like, He's overstriding, he's twisting, he's running fast, he bounces the ball. There's so many different things happening, kind of, um, I guess, put those hamstrings at quite a bit of stress. And would one circumstance be more common than another, like high speed or acceleration? or? Um, so the evidence would probably say high speed and acceleration, but then going back to probably that survey, we asked what coaches perceived and they were probably more of the opinion that it's like sprinting, but bending over. So flexing at the hip. So it probably is a bit sport specific as well. Like that's an AFL setting in rugby league, for example, it might be that it is more just the high speed because there's less of that, like picking the ball up off the ground because it's much more of a, I guess, possession game would maybe be the way to put it. Yeah. It's an interesting take as well, because I have heard, I've not read on this, but I've heard, um, anecdotally that's the strength and conditioning athletes that work with hockey players end up with with um, asymmetries in in hamstrings they end up with one hamstring that that tends to be to be tighter than the other and that's that is that situation when where you're trying to accelerate or or, or move at higher velocities bent over because it's the demands of those sport hmm. um so we see that, as you mentioned, like like spr sprinting, it seems to be, or high-speed high running, um, whether or not it's sprinting, seems to be the time when these injuries are most prevalent. And and as, as you mentioned, that's to do with the the need to decelerate the limb or constrain the limb so that you can take a, another step. And I recently came across something, um, an, an article by, by Timmins at, at ACU who, who mentioned that faster running speeds lead to relatively higher hamstring negative work and, and an interesting point he made was that at 86 at 80 percent uh, maximum velocity or, or, or speed in a straight line that it's approximately 60 percent of maximum negative work but at 90 percent max velocity that it's more cl closer to a 92 percent um, maximum of negative work and so that 10 percent increase in velocity from 80 to 90% led to a 32% increase in, in negative work. And so 
you have identified that somewhat and it has led to the um, creation or birth of your PhD topic, which is to look at um, how we can adapt training to suit that. So how have coaches and, and sports scientists and practitioners tried to adapt training um, to mitigate those risk factors? Yeah, you looking at that, you would think maybe it would make sense just to run faster more frequently. Yep. But yep. <laughs> um, I guess it's probably that conundrum of like running fast is what causes the injury. So why would I put myself at risk by doing it? Um, so most of, I guess, the early like injury prevention stuff is, is focused around maybe stretching to start with. And then we kind of got to the, the point and it might tie in really well here that like I see how it's 80% max velocity um, is probably where like muscular tendon stretch kind of peaks um, when we're running. It doesn't really change from 80% of max speed to 100%, which might sound a bit different because I guess you're running faster, you would think you would stretch further and people probably associate the stretch with injury. But it's, yeah, it's that maximum negative work that's increasing exponentially along with kind of like the force going into the ground. Um, so yeah, we probably looked at flexibility first and found that it's pretty weak evidence, I guess, for really mitigating injuries by itself. So then we kind of looked towards towards strengthening and maybe like screening for weak athletes. Um, and then I guess from there, we get to the point where we have looked at isometric strength, we've looked at concentric strength, we've looked at eccentric strength and probably determined that eccentric strength maybe has the closest relationship with injury. But even now, I think there was a, an article that came out not very long ago by Matt Bourne that kind of said that eccentric strength by itself maybe isn't that good of a guide as to whether someone is at risk of an injury. Mm. Um, and then from there, it's probably moved towards more of that load monitoring. But I think that ACU group have been really good at that. So Josh Ruddy and Steve Duhigg both have similar articles that talk about the effect of high-speed running on injury risk. And whilst it's good to kind of look back retrospectively and say these athletes did this much and they were at risk of injury, um, we still kind of can't predict an injury from that. And I think you talked about that last week or maybe the week before about predicting injury from training load. So that's probably where we got to where we are now. Yeah, that's kind of links to your your honours work a little bit, let's see, um, looking yeah. at, at how much work somebody does and then what their risk of injury is. And it didn't really match up very well, did it? Not at all. And they were doing a lot of sprinting work, but it didn't really increase their risk of injury based off the models that were built. Yeah. So talking about eccentric strength of the hamstrings, obviously there's a piece of equipment out now called the Nord board. Um, what would, what, or what's your opinion about using the Nord board for, you know, football club, you know, pre-season to help, injuries or um, I guess assess their athletes um, strength and uh, readiness for training and competition um, I think it's a good tool to have but you can't kind of live and die by it just and I think it probably comes back to the fact that we know strength by itself like your one RM can vary by I think it's only like 18% day to day so if you imagine you assess someone on the Nord board and they come in one day and they're 80% weaker. Well, how do you know it's just not natural variation that they're there? But I think it's a good tool that if you can regularly like implement, it doesn't really take long to do a Nord board. If you can get one on there each week, you might notice a trend when you look back and say, well, 
this is four weeks in now. You were at 350 as an arbitrary number and this week you've dropped to 290. Maybe that's our time where we intervene. But I think when you just look at one data point and even maybe like the left leg at the right leg, if they're quite a bit different, I don't think you can really use that one data point to make a decision. You have to look at it pretty broadly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a great yeah. point about data collection, I think, too. You know, it sort of speaks bro broadly to the fluctuations in training and, and training volume as well. Yeah, with variations like that, I think probably needs to be more um, wider scope of variables that you're going off. Yeah. It's like when yeah. we spoke about heart rate variability, you know, that heart rate variability day to day, if you're taking the same measurement at the same time of day under the same conditions, it, it can fluctuate as well. So there's a, a paper by um, Martin Boucher that sort of recommends, and I know this isn't in, in hamstring strength or anything, but recommends averaging, you know, your, um, your measurements for a whole week in, rather than looking at them day to day. So you take all your measurements, divide by seven if you've collected seven for the week and then you've got one number. So you sort of, it's almost like taking a, a moving point average basically. So you sort of reduce those those sharp peaks or fluctuations to try and get sort of the, the more true, I guess, underlying measurement. Um, but yeah, something to consider. One thing I think it'd be good to add to that is the consistency of when you do that screening as well. Like if you do the Norboard one week when you're fresh off like three days of recovery opposed to like a day after a heavy field session. Um, I know there was another article by uh, Higashihara. I think that's how you say it. Don't, yeah, don't judge me if I got it wrong. Um, but it talked about, I think it was muscle damage following a marathon, the hamstrings, and it showed it was quite low. So you imagine like, particularly in an AFL setting, they accumulate in pre-season, like it could be close to 50K a week on the track. Yeah. Um, so you would expect that they'll be weaker after they've done a heavy session, especially if there's been some high speed yep. um, in that. Definitely. Um, Brock, one thing that I've always found as a bit of a limiting factor around the Nord board is that, so, so the, the idea around this Nord board is that we can, we can measure eccentric load or, or how well the hamstrings are able to lengthen while under tension. And there are two, two parts to that. One, it is an indicator of how well you can decelerate the limb um, when you're running, although it's not not at the same velocity it gives us a, a picture so that's the testing part and, and then the training the training part is that you might be able to increase um, fascicle length or fascicle length which is which are uh, bundles of muscle fibers now one problem i've had had with it though particularly at team sport athletes um, and if we take athletes like like rugby league for example they're already really strong and so you, you put these athletes on a nord board and you see that they produce 450 newtons. And, and, and so they're already at double what, what the population is, but they're still getting injury. So, so how is it? How is it that they can have these incredible numbers that might be close to twice what you would expect from the general population or even the moderately trained population? Um, yet these athletes are still, still, still showing with hamstring injuries. Yeah, uh, I suppose if I had the concrete answer, I'd be rich. But <laughs> um, I think you're right. So the Norboard, like it's that knee dominant movement. And I guess the hamstrings, they're biarticular. So they do hip extension as well. And it's a controlled position, I guess, when you do a Norboard. Typically, like you're in pretty good hip extension when you do it. 
Um, and it, it's also really slow velocity. Like if you think about the deceleration of your limb, say when you sprint, like you're running at eight, nine, 10 meters a second. When you do a board, I'm not sure how many meters per second is, but it's slow. Like when you watch someone who's really strong do it and they control it the whole way down, like can take five, 10 seconds kind of thing. So I think that's probably one of the issues with it. Like it's a good tool to assess that knee dominant, slow velocity strength, but in sport, particular and that's kind of like the common injury mechanism it, it's pretty fast velocity so there's definitely a big limitation there um and i guess there's there's something that we don't have a test for the that those other components of it yet as an aside do you find that um that well, well, well i think one of the other other challenges around it so the the velocity components not necessarily well understood but if you also think about that movement you have a um, fixed distal section at the at the feet and the knees, and then and then you are, are lengthening over that. And so, as opposed to running, where you have have a, a freely moving leg, and and you have different masses of shoes. So if you have a, it, you can't control against what what footwear people um, wear and what what mud might cake up in their shoes or whatever. And so there. You you have a cha- changes in in kind of length of the of the shank depending on where the the Nord board attaches. So so that could change things. So the lever length is reduced as opposed to when you're running freely. The velocity is different, and, and then the mass of the shoe can be different as well. So so personally, I think it's a little too simplistic to think of of the Nord board as, as a panacea as as something that can fix all of the problems. But it's certainly a a tool that we could um we could use what are your thoughts on that yeah i agree i definitely think if i say like i had a budget to go out and um start like start strength and conditioning with like a a football team or whatever it wouldn't be the first thing i would buy like i think uh, it's that good tool you can use when you've got the funds and you have the time and effort to like screen people and regularly do it but yeah as you said like we can't take anything from one data point. And then if there's all these other issues with it, like how useful is it if you work by yourself in a gym kind of thing? Yeah. Um, I think that brings up uh, a nice little point. So we know that at, at the elite level, they're, they're pretty, pretty on top of trying to manage their training loads to avoid these hamstring injuries. But when we think about it, the majority of people that play football play at a recreational level. And they're still popping strings like there's no tomorrow. Mm. So from, from your research, how could we uh, adapt our training to try and help them prepare for the demands of their sport? Is there particular things that we could introduce to these teams, um, given that a lot of teams won't adhere to um, some pretty simple training programs because they want to spend the time playing football, for example? Is there anything that you you think would be beneficial that they could do and it's easy for them to implement at a football club? Um, I know that Nordics probably aren't seen as like the the um, the best exercise, but in terms of like implementation at say a community level, they're really easy to do because they don't have equipment, but there's the drawback that they might, they like they produce a lot of soreness. No one's done a Nordic and not been sore. Um, and that's probably like one of the things that puts um, I guess clubs off it. So I think one thing you could do at a community level and 
we probably need to educate, I think, community, like the actual team coaches more because there's not many community level sports that have a strength and conditioning coach. But if we could introduce one like gradual high speed running from pre-season through would be a really cool thing to see, not just like, here you are, we rock up in November, we've got three weeks before we go on a month break at Christmas, let's smash ourselves. Because I think that is clearly not the way to go. Like if we think about our basic training load model, we can't predict injuries, but if we know that someone's come off like eight weeks of doing nothing and we do this at them, common sense would say something's probably not gonna go that well if we do that. Um, but I think there we can definitely incorporate like a, a warm-up is probably a really good way to introduce some exercises, like just some simple glute bridges, stuff like that that's body weight. And at least we can get some loading in early. Like it's not perfect and it never will be. And potentially like encouraging players to maybe look at going to get, if they're serious about playing football, going to find someone in their community to help them um, implement maybe some more uh, in-depth methods. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I know working with a community level football club, it's it's hard to find the time to implement simple things like that. And I know that Nordics has become a, a big thing at our football club, and it's a bit of a, a a battle between who can do the best Nordic nowadays. Yeah. So, like you said, it's it's difficult at times. Uh, lots of clubs aren't educated, and I think. Um, it will take time, but eventually I think we'll get to that point where hopefully at the community level, we can get on top of these hamstring injuries to some extent. I think it's um like I said it before, but the warm-ups are a really good opportunity. Like I think when you think about coaching in general, you warm up at a community team might take like 10 minutes, but it's a good opportunity to learn skills and, and practice things. And that could be one aspect. I'm not saying we should be doing Nordics before we train, but like, we can do some easy ground balls. I think about like an arabesque is essentially a single leg RDL, which is loading the hamstrings. And then that other thing, like, yes, Nordics give us soreness, but it takes like 30 seconds to do four Nordics at the end of training. So I think if people are serious, we could easily implement that. It just needs to kind of be driven. And I think if you can get a good group of players that you can educate, that they can push that towards the rest of the group. I think that's a really good point you've raised. And that's something that we're about to research. So in the women's AFL, they, they look at the prep to play program, which is a kind of movement mobility strengthening thing that, that uh, was devised by Latrobe Uni that happens ideally as part of a warm up, And we're just about to um, start an honors, honors research project that do, does that prep to play um, reduce asymmetries in, in hamstrings um, and reduce the quadriceps to strength ratio as, as a way to kind of proof these athletes. I think, I think you're right. It's something that's, that's overlooked. That's probably a relatively simplistic fix because we're talking 10 minutes um, to potentially have a, have something that could val possess value to those athletes. And it doesn't cost any money. I mean, we, we talk about all the time in this podcast about the takeaways for our, our listeners. And I mean, something that's just a really quick, easy, no cost win for, for any team, team sport athlete or any, um, any team that, that sort of w would be performing high speed running. I think it's a really, really good, really good suggestion. Um, so probably a highlighting point for us there, I reckon, team. 
think um, to, to add to that, sorry, um, in terms of like Nordic load, there's a really cool article by Joel Preslin um, and that ACU group again that showed that we think about eccentric strength and fascicle length. If you do eight reps a week, like that's the same result as doing 72 reps a week of Nordics. So like the evidence is there. There's a lot to say that it works. It's just creating buy-in and kind of the education on top of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had, do have another question related to community level, but it sort of starts with uh, sprinting or running again. Um, what's sort of the ways that we can track our high-speed running? Um, and then is that the same at the community and the elite level? I guess the best way we would track it at the elite level would be to use GPS. And I think it's also pushing towards, um, I think in English Premier League soccer, they're moving towards video analysis as well. Um, I'm not sure how frequently that's implemented, but it looks like that might be better than GPS as well. Um, and then just, on, we... just on that, that they, they, they are looking to to put that in. There's a a new wave of technology that's that's coming in on in kind of last year and will be coming in the next couple of years. Um, and it's all loosely based off that very first piece of that technology, which was invented by Nintendo that we used for the, for the Wii, where it uses lidar scanners to to um, find out where people's limbs are in space. And a, and a lot of that technology. Um, will be present in the future and it's already present in sports like in um, NBA, baseball and nba well, yeah, it's in all the stadiums yeah yep. yeah yeah so so you're very much right i think that'll be kind of the next wave of um of of tech um or very small wearable sensors where we're talking about you know an accelerometer the size of a tic tac that you can pop on your shoe when you shank and and things like that yeah. So to to pose to um, come back to Letsy's question though, like that's that's optimal and that's elite. What do, what is a what kind of grassroots club do? Because you don't you don't have access to a accelerometry and inertial sensors and GPS. Like, are are there proxies we can use to try to to work out? You know, what is our our, our high speed running load? And I think Brock, before you give your answer here, I think because you mentioned the gradual increase in high-speed running, which um, is important. How, how, how could we go about doing that? So I think the easy way to do it would be if you, particularly in like, say, a pre-season, it's often um, running isn't kind of incorporated into drills. It's like this separate thing where you might do like, I don't know, it might be like four 400s or something with whatever recovery. So if you assume that athletes are giving the effort you want, and you, you have to assume that because it's pretty hard to time each individual athlete, um, you can progressively overload that with your prescription. But the caveat to that will be what also happens at training. So if you're one week, you do that running and you have a lot of just stationary drills, they're probably not getting any additional high-speed running. But then if you do that same session the next week, but you have say some full ground stuff and there's maybe a competitive element well then there's all this kind of unaccounted for high speed running so maybe a way to get around that is to think about um and that's probably more on team coaches to be if this if i pick this drill i know i'm going to get some high speed running or i'm going to get no high speed running so 
if there can be some communication, say if there is someone writing the running program at a community level that they know, well, they're going to do this drill at footy training. So I can potentially pull one or two reps out of what I might do if they're running. And then it's probably even easier if you're the team coach and you control everything that goes on at training. Well, you know that if you're prescribing or you're selecting these drills, which might be like full ground that I probably don't have to do as much to counterbalance, but it's never going to be perfect because you're, yeah, you're working on the assumption that athletes are giving their best when they're doing conditioning. And I would say the lower you go down in community sport, the less likely that is. Yeah. Is there a need to um, take into consideration, I guess, the, the match schedule as well? I read a, a recent um, article um, by a European cohort of um, researchers that looked into what, coaches think or what snc coaches in the european premier league think is best and they sort of talked a lot about high speed running but putting it into context of the of the match so would you would you be a proponent of sort of limiting high speed running on the first session after the game or do you think there's enough rest time between maybe a saturday and a tuesday is there anything to take into consideration there between the, the i guess the space between match and the first training session uh so what's that it's probably like 48 hours so I think the best thing you could do before you do that is probably just ask athletes how do they feel and potentially yeah you could ask them to do some rpe but maybe it doesn't even have to be that specific it could just be like how'd you pull up how do you feel in the hamstrings and then modify your session from there but i think if yeah if they pull up okay from saturday to to tuesday it's probably okay to do some high speed running because you you don't want to get to the point on thursday and they play saturday and they've done yeah Yeah. and you smash them on thursday and they play sore yeah yeah great point i think that's a good takeaway is yeah if we're pain-free on on tuesday then then we're probably good to have a pretty pretty high intensity session a follow-up to that do you think that consistency is important with high speed running so if you're doing it on a tuesday you should be doing it tuesday every week or would you adapt to based on how they're feeling um yeah again that's a hard one isn't it sorry i'm just turning some lights on because it's getting dark outside um i think if you can maintain some consistency that is going to be really important um particularly like just generally i've seen some um i can't remember where i saw it actually but i saw something that said if you lose one week it's equivalent to losing like three weeks of training load and it wasn't specific to high speed running but i'm assuming that there's probably a similar application in that vein so if you if players come back and say they're sore two weeks in a row potentially maybe you're five weeks behind where you thought you were does that yeah. make sense yeah yep just on i guess managing that soreness post exercise we're talking about you know delayed onset muscle soreness especially in the hamstrings how would you or what advice would you have for people managing that post exercise um that they probably need to one be educated or know the difference between like what is delayed onset muscle soreness so what is OMS and what actually might potentially be something a bit worse so maybe the best way to go about it was i think there there's a research article jack hickey talks about rehab and they use like a four out of ten scale i think you could use a similar um kind of protocol with players that are uninjured that are but that have pulled up sore so potentially if you rate your, your soreness like you're less than the three out of ten it's probably okay that you can go out and do some high-speed running. But if you're someone that comes back and says, like, I'm 7 out of 10, then that's when we might modify a session. It's, that's a pretty broad way of going about it. But I think you could do something like that. I don't think having pain doesn't mean you can't do it. 
I think that's a super important point and, and it's something I've noticed in perhaps the last five years is this idea from strength and conditioning coaches and sports coaches that, that all, all pain post-exercise and all inflammation is something that we want to get, get rid of and, and we want to get rid of it with, with antioxidants, um, you, you know, with ice baths, with com compression wear. And what we're actually seeing is athletes not adapting as well now. And so there's, there's a wealth of literature coming out about ice baths and cryotherapy that they blunt adaptation. Um, and I, and I recent, recently saw a study talking about athletes that use um, um, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs post-training. So in this case, it was ibuprofen. And I, and I imagine it will be even worse for, for things like, like diclofenac sodium or Voltaren. And, and in this study, they, they took ibuprofen and effectively halved their muscle gains after training. So they effectively halved the hypertrophy compared to a control group. And, and I think culturally, we need to move away, away from that, that yes, a hamstring strain is dangerous and, and, and you need to know where that point is. But, but DOMS is, is a natural healthy response to exercise-induced muscle damage and is part of that adaptation process. I agree, hundred percent. There is there is research, you know, and I think we're all across it, stating that you know inflammation is actually just the body's normal process of adaptation and healing. And if you stunt that, and as you said, you're gonna, you know, slow someone's adaptation to that training stimulus and training load. We should just qualify that you know we're not we're not saying that you should train through all pain and that you know you need to train harder if, if you're not feeling pain, you know, sort of harking back to what we were talking about last week about you know, training harder and harder or whatever, but, you know, just, just highlighting that, you know, some muscle damage, you know, from, from training or training induced muscle damage is okay. And that we should just sort of, um, I guess, monitor the level of it, I think is what you're saying, you know, and just like, just keeping a check on it. Like you said, less than a four out of 10, it's probably okay. Yeah. And I think it comes back to Brock's point where we need to educate our athletes what the difference between delayed onset muscles pain and maybe a hamstring strain pain um, so that we understand what different pains are. Um, anyway, that leads me to a question for you, Sando. I did see this thing, this little infographic that the prehab guys put up online talking about hamstring rehab using pain-free and pain threshold um, in their rehab groups. So I'll quickly share it. What are your thoughts on limiting pain to no pain to having some pain during your rehab for hamstrings? Yeah, I love this little um, infographic. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Um, basically saying that um, those people that sort of push to a limit of four out of 10 pain, sort of as you were mentioning, um, have in, as a result, they return to, to play at a similar time to those that have pain-free rehab, but um, they have a higher isometric knee flexor strength and an improvement in the bicep femoris, lateral hamstring, um, <clears throat> fascicle length. And so off the back of that, would you, you say that, that would be, yeah, would you say that, um, I guess, and threshold rehab group, um, will have better outcomes longer term? Yeah, I, 
I don't know if it will be longer term, but short term, it certainly seems like it would be better. I don't know if there's enough um, evidence, like looking at it over a long period of time yet that we can say that. But if it's better in the short term, is it likely it's better in the long term? I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm not sure. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's a, it, I agree. I think if there's any indication that there's some improvement in strength, even though they're getting back to sport at the same amount of time, I think you know, there would be... I would, I would assume that if there's improvements in, like we've got here, green thumbs up, isometric knee flexor strength and in improvements in biceps, femoris, long head, fascicle length, that's, that's got to be a benefit moving into the future for these athletes for sure. And it sort of ties into a lot of other research. Um, I myself as a physio have read around people that push through a little bit of pain during their rehab. Um, and to those that have pain free, rehab um, and those people um, in that research which we can sort of link into this podcast um, actually have um, faster rates of returning to their sport but also a lower rate of recurrence of their injury so um, I'm hoping that more of this research comes comes out because you know as we've been saying pushing through a little bit of pain um, you know, might be more beneficial than avoiding it all together. Yeah. Hey, the, the flip side to that, Brock, is that some, is, is there a scenario in which athletes can become too strong? So I've, I've read some, some emerging evidence that, or some emerging research that, that athletes can potentially, um, could potentially create a situation where their where their muscles are too strong. Have you have you come across that yet? Uh, I haven't come across anything specifically, but in my mind, it it makes sense. And like completely under anecdotally speaking, it seems like there is more and more like tendon ruptures or like kind of more severe hamstring injuries, particularly in field sports, than what there might have been previously. Like it's not uncommon. And the one that springs to mind in AFL example again, but James Brawley earlier in the year, like I've seen him at St Kilda train and like he is a really strong guy, like massive quads. I wouldn't know what his normal board numbers are, but I'm assuming they're quite large. And then you see him sprinting like out for 12 weeks kind of thing. So I don't know. What do you, yeah. What do you, yeah. Well, well, that's that in line with that. I mean, and that's, that's what I've heard. Um, I mean, I've only seen very preliminary um, evidence around that, but but hearing people talk about this um, anecdotally, and and those that are in um, able to perform ultrasound, that there's this this idea that that those injuries now, whether where you if you had a hamstring strain in the past, it, it was four to six weeks off, and now we're seeing like complete ruptures that are leading to four to, four to six months months off and and there's this kind of talk around the idea that it might be that the muscles themselves are becoming stronger than the aponeuroses and the, and the tendons in which they attach to and, and so the, the the muscles in effect are, are no longer the limiting factor it's not it's not to do with a lack of eccentric strength or a, a lack of fascicle length it's it's that 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 they are stronger than the structures which they attach to yeah even just thinking out loud and you know in this conversation now it's like if we're building athletes now to be stronger than they ever have been and run as fast as they ever have been well it makes sense from a from a force perspective that those muscles are literally generating 
more force than they ever have and potentially too much force for the for the structures of the body and it kind of i guess yeah makes sense logically in in my brain you know that we've got big strong fast afl players who are typically quite tall and heavy and they're producing a hell of a lot of force and yeah like you said warney the the weakest link is the next part in the chain, which is the tendons, I guess. Yeah, Rob Peter to pay Paul. It's it's kind of that that concept. And and where I wanted to come back to you, Brock, like what what do you, what can we do about that? Like it like it seems to me from what you've said and what I've read that that eccentric training is not is not the silver bullet or the magical bullet, as I once read in an honest thesis. Um, what a term, hey. What could, what, what would, I mean, what, what would you, what would you say? Like, how should we be training athletes if it's not about just eccentric strength? Like, like are there other contractions we should be looking for? I think an area that we probably need to explore more is, is isometrics. I know when I did my honors, um, there was a, another guy and we kind of, we shared like a control sample, but he looked at isometric holds on like a GHD machine. So you think like a prone um, hip extension hold, and so we didn't really see any big change there, but my thought is that the isometrics probably, well, I kind of have been speaking to a few people, but it's not heavy enough potentially. So maybe it needs to be like, if you're only holding your body weight, is there enough load? Cause we know that when we do Nordics, we want them to be super maximal. So heavier than what you can probably tolerate. Um, so maybe isometrics are in that same boat and then, we can go down a bit of a Franz Bosch route and talk about kind of stiffness and then the whole debate of is it an eccentric contraction versus is it an isometric contraction and it's just muscle slack. Mm. I don't know. That probably opens another can of worms that you could do another podcast on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sandon, I've seen um, a a bit of, like not thinking about hamstrings, but but certainly for, you know, calves and and Achilles, like like it's very commonplace in, in... for physios and physical therapists to prescribe ISOs. Am I, am I right in, in, in thinking that? Right. Um, and I think there's been a lot of research more recently showing, you know, people trying to um, compare isotonic compared to isometric contractions um, and the benefit of those. And a lot of the isometric, uh, I guess, prescriptions have been more, through rehabbing tendinopathies, um, so um, basically an umbrella term for um, tendinitis and tendinosis, so tendinitis being inflammation of the tendon um, and tendinosis being more the degeneration of the the tendon itself. Um, And I guess the basis of that is that isometrics, you can contract the muscle without the tendon being... um, shortened or lengthened and so it can have an analgesic effect on that um, in terms of the uh, you know if we're looking at health or the strength of the tendon um, I guess that would, uh, the research hasn't sort of gone into that as such it's more sort of around patients um, you know rating of, of, of pain or um, VAS so visual, visual analog scale rating of pain um, and so isometrics do have a therapeutic effect uh, for tendinopathies, um, but in terms of, you know, the strength of the tendon, I think the, the research doesn't go into that much. Yet. 
Sando, is there? Uh, so, so when you're when you're talking about eccentric, we're talking about muscles lengthening un, under tension, and isos is is just contraction without movement. That's that's the idea of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you might and you might go to a certain range of that movement and hold it at that range. So you might say ninety degrees of knee flexion um, and hold a, a resistance at that point. So, so training to a weak spot. I think that's a, a novel concept that I don't think's been looked at as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, in in my mind, one of the the key things to developing um, any changes in architecture and any tissue is mechanical load. And one of the simplest ways to impose mechanical load is to increase the time of which that load is applied. Um, and that is that is easy to do in in that isometric scenario. So I certainly think that um, is is something that's worth exploring into the future. Um, Brock, I, I wanted to ask, ask you though about symmetry or asymmetry in, in hamstrings. So there, there seems to be this idea in, in coaching circles or sports science circles that, that everything needs to be symmetrical and that, and that values need to match one another. So if you're left hamstring is is 430 newtons that that your you know right hamstring is also 430 newtons on eccentric strength and i remember talking in it i think it was in episode two about ha- having a, a chat to a coach who, who had had this arbitrary cutoff where athletes couldn't couldn't return to play until their until their hamstrings had exactly the same strength and and i thought it was kind of a, a, a fruitful exercise um to achieve that what is what is your take on on asymmetry from from what from the data you collected from your your phd research and and should we be concerned about it um i think we should we should be concerned about like if it's a bigger symmetries like two percent is is nothing and the other thing you have to think about is when you're measuring like unless you've got that before point to kind of refer to like how do you know they weren't 10 percent different at the start um, it's seen, like I've seen two different articles that suggest like large differences. So we're talking like greater than 15%, greater than 20% are, are a weak risk factor for injury, but like that's a weak risk factor as well. So potentially by getting stronger and getting longer, even if the asymmetry is there, potentially we're already negating some of that risk. Um, and I know from in my PhD, like I spoke to, to Andrew Russell and he his big point was that like I'm not concerned unless it's like a really large difference between limbs. Maybe though, when you're coming back from injury, we need to be a little bit more stringent with our thresholds. But so maybe like we want to be within 10% instead of say 2% because 10% of 300, like if someone's 300 and someone's 270 newtons, that's probably pretty achievable. But if someone's like 300 and 296, like I'm sure there's plenty of athletes that never had a hamstring injury that couldn't, couldn't do that. Well, and, and as you said, that that day-to-day variance is probably more than the measure. Hmm. Um, what what about a different type of asymmetry, which is hamstring to quadriceps strength? Is is that is something that's important to look at? So, so I'm talking about how um, strong your knee extensors are compared to your knee flexors. Yeah, so that was probably something that we we probably really looked at as a risk factor maybe 10, 15 years ago, but 
the latest kind of evidence that I've seen. So um, Brady Green has a, like a systematic review meta-analysis that kind of says that it's, it's not that important and that um, we can't really like strongly put it in any relationship to hamstring injuries. Um, in saying that though, like that's in a all male population. And we know that with female athletes, like quadricep strength might be more important, particularly like there's that higher risk of ACL. So potentially maybe in that population, maybe that's somewhere where it might be a bigger risk factor. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's certainly, well, what do I think about that? I, I guess I'd say two, two things. One, I agree with you that it's, that it's, I think it's less important than we previously thought. And I, and I always found it a little odd that we would compare the strength of uh, knee extensors that have four muscles and knee flexors that have three primary muscles. I realize there's six muscles that can flex the knee, um, but, we're, but we're really, we're talking about isokinetic dynamometry. We're talking hamstrings versus quads. And so we're not, not comparing the same amount of muscles. Um, and I think it was naive to, to have this, this idea that we needed to have this, this magical you know, number around um, how, how strong the, the hamstrings are compared to the quads. There might be merit in that if it's too far one one way. If your quads can produce, you know, five hundred newtons and your hamstrings can produce three, then you're probably going to run into some sort of trouble where you kick your own leg off or something. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I think there was probably a bit too much um, uh, credence paid to that that idea. However, I think you present a really interesting take when you talk about women in sport. And one thing we have done really badly as, as scientists and not just sports scientists is investigate women. And the, and the reason we have done that is because there, there are more men that, that play sport on the whole. Of course, that differs from sport to sport. Um, but, which is reducing. The yeah, which is, is reducing, reducing. Which is fantastic, yep. And, um, and menstrual cycles are they do alter results, particularly in, in, in human physiology. We know, that, we know that differences in menstrual cycle will, will, will create um, differences in, in a whole host of measures. And, and, and because of that um, confounding issue, historically, we have, we have not looked at that. And, and that's kind of inexcusable. And, and fortunately, as we progress um, forward, that's changing. So, so more and more research into female athletes is happening. Um, but I suspect, as you may have alluded to then, that due to differences in, um, due to structural differences, um, particularly to do with pelvis width and hormonal differences to do with estrogen, that there may be more importance placed upon the correlation of quadriceps to hamstring ratio um, and its, its association with ACL injuries. I, I don't know if that's the case yet, and I'm not a, as a, as across the research. Have you seen anything in that space, Brock? Not yet, but I think if I was going to start a PhD again and I wanted to do hamstrings, I would be looking, yeah, down that route. There you go, listeners. That's a hot tip. If you're going to start a PhD, you want the big dollars. Someone jump on it. I don't know about the big dollars, but <laughs> you want to learn something. Yeah. Hey, I reckon Val yeah. Performance, who invented the Nord board, would be, I reckon they'd be doing all right, dollar wise, mate. Yeah, that's true. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what the subscription model is worth at the moment, but it's out of my uh, price a range. Lot. Mm, a lot, a lot. One one thing I've always thought about this 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 hamstring stuff though, um, and and I think about this because I. Um, having worked with athletes, you you tend to back off strength and conditioning as they come into competitive season um, with the idea that you want to minimize soreness and, and potentially minimize injury risk. It, what do you know about minimum effective dose um, for, for hamstring training? Like, like presumably we have to be hitting it throughout the season and, and how might that look for an athlete? Yes, well, it's probably pretty highly individual, but... I think the best starting point we can go through for like a minimal effective dose is maybe that, that Pressland study before. So if it's eight reps a week, that's like one set of four, maybe on Tuesday, one set of four on a Thursday or something like that. It's probably a good starting point. Um, but there might be some athletes that are weaker and you might need to require more. And then the other thing we kind of talked about scheduling before, like in an elite setting, you might play Sunday and then play Friday night. Um, so maybe there's in that week you need to knock it back and it's like one set of four Mm. like arbitrary figure it could be one set of three and then the next week you might have a 12 day break so you can potentially get like maybe 10 12 reps in in that time Um, but in turn yeah incorporating it into a season it's hard but I think coming back to also like that losing high speed running if you don't do it it puts you behind so it's in your best interest that if you can do it you should make every effort Yep. So what, what about, I guess, those people coming back from a hamstring injury? How would you, how would you assess and how would you know that they're ready to return to competition? I think a lot of clubs would have a, a checklist that might be like, first things first, they need to be able to like do that, an isometric bridge. They might need to be able to do like a, a hamstring slider before, then they need to be able to do Nordics then we'll gradually build them up in terms of their speed. If they tick off running, they pull up okay. We gradually increase the speed, we increase the volume. But I think the thing that is really kind of influential in that, and particularly maybe at a community level opposed to at elite, where in an elite level, strength and conditioning coach, physio, um, head of medical, whoever is in that position can kind of say like, we're not going to put this athlete out there. They're at 90%, they're not ready to go. At a community level, there's that pressure, like we need to get this player back. Oh, you got through some run throughs at 90%. You can do all these other things. And it's, I guess, weighing up that risk of like, do you, do you let them go at that point? Um, but I think generally, like we say, three weeks on average, 21 days, if we load it earlier and we can get them running earlier, it's generally a pretty good predictor that they'll get back earlier. Um, but yeah, there's no probably hard and fast rule. What I suppose you work in that space more than what I would in terms of like return to play. What do you think? Yeah, exactly that. And I think we um, we did speak about it, I think in one or two episodes ago around um, returning to play and, you know, being a, a larger sort of criteria and a real collaborative approach with the athlete, the medical staff and the coach. Um, and picking criteria off rather than it being time-based. And I think that point that you noticed, uh, you mentioned Brock too, is getting, and, and we talked about this, Sando, the other week, is getting getting your rehab started earlier will, yep. will often be a good indicator of you getting back to sport earlier. So I think that's a good point to make. Sando, what are the, 
what are the outcomes like in those those players that are trying to redevelop their hamstring strength after ACL surgery? From your perspective, as an S and from a, as a as a physio, do, is that successful or not so much? I think it's really interesting, actually, the ACL surgical world. Um, they started off with you know quadricep uh, graphs, and then they've moved on to hamstring graphs and um, aloe graphs where they get them from uh, carvers and they've done a full circle and gone back to quad, quadricep graphs um, and so you know, what they were doing back in the 70s and 80s I think they found actually produces the, the best I guess long-term outcomes I think there's obviously still some more research to come out to confirm that um, those that have had hamstring graphs and I, I've got a a teenage athlete at the moment who is coming back she's you know 15 months down the track now um and you know she probably hasn't uh pushed herself hard enough in the latter part of her rehab where now advice is that if she wants to get back to a basketball and a netball she really has to ramp up that intensity because even though we can't uh <clears throat> We, we can't get rid of the risk of injury. We can minimise it by, I guess, getting her body used to, as you know, as we've been saying, high-speed running, but also change of direction. Um, and, you know, doing that through her training sessions and then building up the strength of her hamstring. Now, just in my experience with ACLs, it's very, very challenging to build up that if you've had the hamstring graph, build up that hamstring that you've had the graph from, make it equal to the opposite side. Because you mentioned miss, because it. you're missing a section of the muscle, is that why? Yeah, and just the um, the, you know, as the body goes through um, that micro trauma of you know somebody digging into your body, um, there's obviously going to be some hypersensitivity around that hamstring and that hamstring tendon um it's it is challenging and some people do get very very close to the opposite side in terms of their strength but it's a lot of hard work and um i, I guess brock have you seen much of that in in your research yourself? um oh well not in terms of like growing the muscle back or getting fascicle length back as much, but I've, I've seen studies where people get pretty close to strength, but I, cause that's always seems to be measured on a normal though. And I always wonder like, do athletes that have had that hamstring graph compensate by using different muscles in the hamstring better? So like yeah. the example would be that I'm, it's, is it semi 10, semi mem that the graph normally comes from? Yeah. Yep. So I wonder then in that instance, because you know, when we do a gnaw board that it's knee dominant, so it's probably more medial hamstring than what it is lateral hamstring. Maybe the athletes that get closer, get better are just compensating by using that lateral hamstring a little bit more. Um, yeah. But I haven't seen a heap of that. The other interesting thing though, on that is I think it's really funny that when like someone has an ACL injury, for example, like, they probably don't get told that essentially what you've got is you've got a hamstring injury now as well, because like it's, yeah. and obviously the ACL is much worse than the hamstring. No one's going to debate that, but if you don't get on top of it, like 
instead of your rehab may be being that nine to 12 months in the best case, it blows out to 18, 24. Yeah. Potentially never. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly right. Like that's a good point that, you know, now they've got a, a hamstring injury that they have to rehab um, on top of their ACL reconstruction. Um, and yeah, so answer that question, Warnie, it's um, putting that strength back up can be done. And Brock made a good point that maybe they're compensating by using more of the other hamstring muscles. Um, but it does take a lot of uh, a lot of time and, and a lot of work as well. People really have to put in the, the effort to get it there. So Sando, you've been talking about ACL uh, recovery from surgery. We've had two football players go the conservative route after doing a complete and partial rupture of an ACL. What's the importance of hamstring strength in those individuals that decide to say return to sport without going down the surgical route from an ACL injury? Yeah, it's it's actually been very interesting seeing quite a few case studies come out of those people that uh, haven't gone down the surgical route and essentially back to playing their same level of sport without even having uh, the ACL reconstructed. Um, now these I guess, again, more research will need to be done to see whether or not, you know, these people are the exception or the rule. Um, I guess the hamstrings will be, be a lot more, I guess, load that they'll have to take up because now you have reduced passive uh, strength and stability because you're missing that ACL. And so the way the body will compensate is it over loads the active system which is your muscle and your tendon so those hamstrings definitely need to become a lot stronger and um, obviously they need to learn how to um, prevent that real translation where ACL would usually do that. Have you yeah, dealt with many well, sorry. ACLs? Sorry, sorry Jared. Yeah. Have you dealt with many? Because I know the two two boys that we've had, they're potentially going to go get surgery now after 18 months and months, I think. I've, I've dealt with um, with one guy. He was, uh, wasn't an athlete as such, but um, wanted to avoid an operation as much as possible. And we got him back everything he needed to do from an occupational point of view and a recreational point of view to the point where he was kneeling and walking on his knees and free um, because that was a part of his, his occupation, getting down into sort of trenches and things like that. Um, yeah, so there's there's been a few um, instances that I've had. Um, that are, I guess, good stories, but um, again, I think more research to be done to see whether these people are, you know, as I said, the exception or the rule moving that, forward that's a a good point sand and the last thing that you raise is that that there is more research and that and that's certainly something that i think has become quite evident during this this chat with with brock today um that we really do need more research we we have a bit of an idea about what it is what the hamstrings role is in, in, in various sports, what some of the risk factors are. We have an idea about how we might measure hamstring strength, but not completely. And we also have an idea about how we might train to prevent injury, but not 
completely. Or even monitor the load that goes through it, morning. Yeah, correct. And so we have kind of a an incomplete picture, a growing picture, but an incomplete picture of what is a very important um, topic of sports science. Brock, do you have any lasting kind of takeaway messages or, or ideas, th- things that you feel it is important the listener might need to know? Uh, well, I think if they were listening, they would have picked up that Nordics probably aren't the answer to our problem. So like they're good, they probably have a place in most programs, but you need to be regularly exposing to, to different contraction types as we talked about. So you're getting your eccentric, uh, knee dominant when you do a Nordic, but you need to also think about your hip dominant exercises. So that's your RDLs, good mornings, things like that. Arabesque. But the arabesque, yeah, perfect. And then there's the isometric contraction as well. So whether that is in that prone position, it might be in a glute bridge, um, things like that. And then we also want to not, I guess, go away from that. Like we need to keep high speed running, can't avoid the injury mechanism. You need to control, but regularly expose yourself to that if you play a sport that is that requires you to do that yeah i think i think they're vital takeaway points um and and the the takeaways i would add on top of that don't don't be don't be afraid of some doms that you will experience from high speed sprinting because it is probably worth the 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 slight discomfort that you will experience and i know from the coaches I have spoken to, there seems to be um, a little bit of reluctance about hot programming high-speed sprints or even even moderate to high-speed sprints because of the risk of, of hamstring um, injury by ACL injury, which I think is fraught with danger because if you are working with athletes who want to win, which is almost every athlete, then they are going to put themselves in situations during sport where they run as fast as they can. and And if you don't, expose them to that as as the concept says specific adaptations to impose demands then then they don't adapt and 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 if you are not adapted to the stimulus that you're exposed to then then your risk of injury goes right up so so don't necessarily be um afraid to 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 be exposed to that as long as it's within in reason would you agree with that brock yeah, and the last thing I would add on top of that as well is you make a good point about like athletes are going to run as fast as they can because they want to win. If you are sprinting, like there's a good chance that there's this double-edged sword where you get faster as well. Like we know that if you yeah. want to run fast, you have to sprint. So if you're doing it in a controlled manner, like there's a good chance you're getting an injury prevention benefit, but you're also getting this performance benefit that you might see translate as well. And I think if you're selling that to, to community level or elite level athletes, that might be your best selling point. And, and so that's really what you found from your PhD study, wasn't it? When you compared Nordics and sprinting together that you had similar developments in eccentric control, but only one group was better at sprinting. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So that my honours um, came to that conclusion that yeah, you're getting a performance benefit if you're doing sprinting along with the eccentric gain, and the eccentric gain was no, not, not st- statistically significantly different to what you would get if you did e- eccentric exercise, so Nordics. And then the last part that I'm kind of working on writing up at the moment, we looked at um, more specifically an acceleration sprint versus a maximum speed sprint, and yeah it looks like both of them improved uh, eccentric strength 
they got faster and then um, they also improved fascicle length as well. So who um, would have thought if you wanted to reduce your risk of injury while sprinting, you might actually practice the skill of sprinting. Hey, Hey, uh, warning, just to add on to your point, which is really important. I just wanted to give uh, people listening, but if you're watching um, a guide um, and I show my patients this, um, to really assess whether to push yourself or not. Um, I'll bring this up. Am I able to share the screen there, let's see. You should be able to. There we go. So Got this it. is a really good uh, infographic from the running physio, Tom Goom. Um, and so it gives you three parameters to assess um, whether or not to I guess, continue to push through pain after exercise or during exercise. And the three key um, responses that he states is um, obviously a, a pain rating out of 10, zero to three is within a safe zone, a four to five is still acceptable, but above a five out of 10 is excessive. You want to be looking at your symptom response over the next 24, and I'd even say 24 to 48 hours, um, and seeing that your um, symptoms settle back to their baseline within that time period. And then you're looking at the trend of those symptoms um, over a time, uh, an extended time period for four to six weeks. And so I think that sort of explains it really simplistically and hopefully gives people a bit of a guide in themselves. I think that's a, a really powerful little infographic there. And, and of course, not not necessarily unique to hamstring but but all training and it, and it, and it, it it comes back to that classic idea of the of the general adaptation syndrome proposed by Sally all those years ago that 1950s 1950s yeah you you need to expose yourself to those stimulus monitor how it goes um, and then progressively overload that over time um brock it has been fantastic talking to you and i feel like i have learned a lot from chatting about this tonight where can listeners find you if they want to interact with you um well it's been good to be on here actually i've enjoyed it quite a bit thanks for having me um but i am on twitter at Brock W. Freeman, or if you're in Ballarat and you go to the Mount Helen campus of Bed Uni, I sometimes walk around the hallways there. Yep, sometimes walk around with the AeroPress and the specialty coffee beans, being a fellow coffee snob. Yeah, you can see the uh, in the video, there's the Barista Express in the background. <laughs> yeah. Had a fair workout today. Hey, that's that's part and parcel of being a PhD student. Agreed. Um, also, listeners, if you would uh, like to see more of Brock's work as an academic, you can head to Google Scholar and type in Brock W. Freeman um, and see the work that Brock has produced and is continuing to produce um, in this in the space of hamstring injury prevention. Brock, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting and learning from you tonight. Um, Thank you very much for joining us on episode four of the Sport Science Collective podcast. All right, thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun.
Thanks, mate. Right. Thanks, mate. Thanks, bro.